To overcome, you must educate. Educate not only yourself, but educate anyone seeking to learn. We are all dead America. We can all learn something. To learn, we must challenge what we already understand. The way we do that is through conversation. Sometimes we have conversations with others. However, some of the best conversations happen with ourselves. Reach out and challenge yourself. Let's dive in and learn something right now. Today we are with Jason Sheftel. Jason is an expert on China, and in today's world, we really need to understand what is going on with the world in China in general and the history behind it all. Jason, could you let people know just a little bit about you and introduce yourself, please? Sure. Thanks for having me on. And I, yeah, I have a background going in China for whew, the in China. That's about a dozen years, and then the interest in China is over twenty. And a lot of what I'm doing these days is trying to give people some context for how China, what China is, how it came to be, what it, we see today, where things are heading, and then what that means for primarily Americans. And that's that's the goal. We're all seeing the world kind of break down, and we got the two big bad bugaboos of the world, which are, which are Russia and China, and things are finally coming to a head. And people need a bit of context for it to get on with their lives, do what they need to do. And I just try and provide a bit of that. Yeah, and it's an excellent podcast that you have. I can't wait to get a hold of your book. It's going to be fascinating. I'm going to be one of the first to get it for sure. Um, your background in China, what got you started? Because it's a lifelong passion for you. Explain that to us, please. Sure. Lifelong passion. The early part is I grew up actually actually with a Chinese uh, man kind of in, coming in and out of my parents' house when I was growing up for various reasons it had to do with my brother. And so I had that. And then really, since I was very young, I've always been fascinated by China, you know, China. And then I guess men might've come originally from, I don't know, Japanese interests. I kind of just moved to China, but whatever that is, that was the early interest. That was profound. That was from a very young age, a sort of early fascination. Then as the 2000s rolled along, we had we had wars, we had 9-11, we had these, these conflicts were brewing, all this was happening. I thought, wow, in the background, there's China growing powerful, developing, modernizing at an astonishing rate. No one never seen it before. Where are things going to happen? What's going to happen? And then when I got into to college, I got basically got a scholarship to, to study in China. I lived in Beijing. I learned the language. And I was there for a long time. And I was there, particularly between 2010 and 2015, on and off, when China was very triumphalist. It was a sense after the great, you know, the great recession, 2008, 2009, that China was, its time had come or its time had come again. And the US was on the downswing and there was now, you know, China's reemergence into the world as sort of a hyper superpower type thing. And that, yeah, so that was the mood there. And then I came back and then a lot of what I've been doing afterwards and even a little before was my focus has been on development. So uh, both the, the reality, the rhetoric and the reality of international development. I've been in, I've been in, Europe, I've been in South America and China, obviously, and it's about why do things develop where they do, uh, you know, so specific, whether that's specific projects, whether that's uh, a natural resource, what kind of nations, what kind of stuff emerges from the ground up as you try and develop people, particularly in the last 75 years, as all these countries, we have more capital, more opportunities for places that have never seen any sort of civilized life 
at a, a large scale to see it before and to see, is this possible? Is this sustainable? These are the really fundamental questions. And like, so can we go and can Afghanistan become something else than Afghanistan? The answer is clearly <laughs> no, right? And you know, the American people in general haven't been given good reasons why, or was this a waste of time? Was it noble? Were we just, was it grifting? Were people, was it just entrenched interests? Uh, what was going on? Why can't we admit when we're wrong? Were we wrong? Have, do we have a discussion about, we don't have any context for any of this and things are now unraveling very quickly. So it, it's just, you know, based on all this time now over 12 years, I've been trying to put together and I'm using China as well, it's where I've had the deepest, longest interest. It's the largest country. That's the only one that can really compete with the United States at a serious level. And figure answering this question of why China became what it is, what it became, how, why, where it's going. This helps us see what, what is and isn't possible in the world and why things happen. And it's just extremely instructive. A lot of people, there's no other country the United Americans think about as much as China anymore. We don't really compare ourselves to Japan or Germany or Britain. Yeah. There's really only one country that can capture people's attention. And I just happen to have the, the interest, the, the comparative perspective, and then like the, the long you know, history and you know, deep dive into this place. Yeah. Well, you were in China during the Belt and Road Initiative then, and that I, I really believe that's when China started breaking out again for this global recognition period. And in somewhat, we helped them do that. In many ways, we helped them do that. And in many ways, that's not a bad thing because in the history of China, haven't they always been about trade and it's capturing the value out of trade for them? China has a very tortured relationship with trade. And I'll say your point's even larger. It's even bigger. It's even more true than you think. We actually are a big reason why China succeeds, succeeded at all since 1978. If they hadn't yes. managed to kind of join the American global trading system, China would have had seen famine and roll, a rolling series of famines and civil wars. Uh, they didn't have the technology, the talent, the capital, the labor to do what it needs to do to industrialize. And it needed, it really, really needed the the foreign input and the help. And the only way to get that was through the, this American system, which is a very unique thing in history. So that's even more important. We, we enabled all of it. And that triumphalist moment, it's surprisingly small. Really 2014 to like 2017 is like maybe as long as it happened. So people remember Belt and Road, wow, we're doing all this stuff. What people don't know today is like Belt and Road has been almost, the, the, the language is still there. They still talk about it, but the actual project, totally abandoned. Uh, there's been huge problems with the project. None of these, because it's just, there's a big reason, kind of I was talking about earlier, development. You know, you want to put money in places to try and develop countries. Yeah. But you also want to have it work out and you also want to get your money's worth. And so over 70% of these Belt and Road initiatives have not panned out. So China was in the red yeah. for all of them. And the United States experienced this also in the 60s, 70s and later, but really starting in the 60s and 70s, you did try to do all these development projects in different parts of the world and they just don't pan out. And there's big reasons why we could get into, but for China, it was just like, uh-oh, we wanted to create an alternative system. That was kind of part of the idea to the United States, this global trading system we joined, but the American system is better, right? Overland trade is, like you mentioned, China has a long history with trade. And it's really the growth of Chinese GDP, what we kind of tough to talk about GDP. Whenever anyone's talking about GDP before like the industrial revolution, just don't even listen to it. Yeah. It was all, it was all super, it was right. like, we were all peasants. Life sucked. Like it's GDP is like almost a worthless concept, but it's useful. You know, to talk about some things. So really, but up until 1000 AD, 
let's say the first 20, 2000 years of Chinese history, yeah, 1200 years when it was imperial. The, the growth in Chinese uh, equivalent of GDP, it was directly correlated to the growth in overland trade, things like the Silk Road and, and other trading routes that, that China used to get its goods out to the rest of the world because China never had the largest consumer base, right? You didn't have, it was 90% of the population was a peasant. <laughs> really, a peasant is the right word too. We get into what yeah. China, ancient Chinese agriculture looked like. It ain't pretty. It's yeah. a nightmare, a miserable nightmare forever. <laughs> that was kind of the way it worked. And what you could do though, if you could sell jade, if you could sell pottery, if you could sell tea, if you could sell all these kind of luxury goods to the rich people all around the world, you suddenly are, I mean, this is the, the base of trade. You get larger markets, you can expand your production, you can do all this stuff and you get a lot more income for the, the, the government. So it's been a huge thing. But really in the last, the whole thou, last thousand years, when the world shifted to maritime trade, which is the basis of the American trading system. The American trade system is these big tankers all around the world and the American Navy patrols and protects everything, right? There's no, you know, outside of Somalia, there's never been a pirate that's taken a ship off the coast of Australia, not even a chance anywhere near the United States, never happened, you know, Western, North Atlantic, none of this happens. And it's because the US Navy is out there to do it. China has had a very different history. China is a, a land-based, you know, uh, power, uh, land-based people, yeah. and particularly northern China is the part of China that took over the rest of China. Northern China has no natural harbors all the way from basically Dalian, basically the Korean border all the way to Shanghai. There are no great natural harbors. You need deep water industrial technologies to dredge the seabed, create space, remove the mudflats, remove all this stuff. So it never had a large maritime commercial economy anywhere near the, the, chi the, prim the, the basically the Chinese governments all the way through the Ming dynasty. It just didn't exist. So what happened when maritime trade came, which was really around 1000 AD, it all China went crazy. It like it, and it started doing these things where it started, it, basically what China has been doing for the last thousand years is it has this policy of opening up the ports, which are these Southern ports, and then closing them down, opening them up and closing down. What it's trying to do, take in all the new technologies, take in all the capital, take in all the foreign goods, let it all in, gain wealth, gain wealth. But then what happens is the wealth starts to destabilize things in China so the government shuts it down. And then it opens up again because it needs the money. And then it shuts it down. It's, it's happened like six times in the last thousand years. And what we saw recently in the 1970s is the most recent iteration of that, where they had the special economic zones and they opened up the port cities. Uh, well, you could even say that the imperial uh, colonization efforts and sort of all the treaty ports, 19th century stuff, that was actually the start of it. The Europeans forcibly opened up a lot of Chinese ports. That happened. Communists came and war came. They shut it all down. And then in the 1970s, again, they opened it up on their own part because there's no other option to develop China. You need these coastal ports. You need to integrate into this maritime system. But because China is this large land power surrounded by islands so or, or peninsulas, right? So you have the Korean Peninsula, you have Japan, you have the Philippines, you have Taiwan, you have et cetera. Et cetera. It just goes all the way, all the way down the, the one chi long Chinese Eastern coast. That has created a very tense relationship with, this, with maritime trade, with sea peoples, with all this kind of stuff, because the Japanese were basically premier pirates in the region for a thousand years. Before they came together, as like, you know, Japan, they were out yeah. there just, wrecking China's day, day in and day out. Uh, that was happening. And it's, it's, so it's been an extremely tense relationship and it, it destabilizes the internal dynamics of China. And so I'd say the, the one fundamental myth people need to always start with when you think about China is that the, the, the key myth, the, the primary one is that there is not one China. There are many Chinas. And I mean this with, from a population standpoint, I mean this from a cultural standpoint, a linguistic standpoint, ethnic, all of it. There, it's so big, there are provinces in China with over 100 million people. They're larger than most countries on the planet. And they have long histories. A lot of them have histories that are independent of the primary Chinese imperial, the 
thrust of, of Chinese history. And it, it, the whole thing is a mess, right? And when we in the United States think about China, we think about this big red China, one large country, just like the United States, just as powerful, you know, and just as united in certain ways, it's just not true. And that's really the core. Once we start to understand that, we see that what the, what's the, what goes on in, in, inside of China between all these different pieces of them and how they don't fit together well, that's when you can start to understand the patterns of Chinese history, how, how it came to be where it is, and then you know, where, unfortunately, things are going for China. Yeah, China has a deep history. And it, it's amazing that you are out there talking about this because a lot of people don't realize. Uh, I, I was listening to some of the podcasts you've been on, and you were talking about the efforts that China always breaks out like, you just stated and then they come back in and these cycles that they go through we see things every four years you know in politics and all of that we really base our views every four years we're swapping them out china doesn't necessarily have that vision. They have a long-term vision. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, so China has this bizarre combination of a long-term vision and an extremely short-term vision. So let me tell you what I mean. So mm -hmm. it's, like you said, there's a long history, but most of China's history is uh, division and chaos. If you look at what, you know, if you look online, you look at Wikipedia, you'll be like, oh, there's all these dynasties. It looks like a, you know, one long string of continuous unified national governments. They're just kind of in, briefly broken up by some little problem periods. And then it re, you know, reemerges like a phoenix every time. That is a, yeah. that is a very deeply uh, misrepresentative picture of Chinese history. Really, it's the other way around. Hmm. You mostly have states that are even, you have a brief, so basically there's three parts to any, any Chinese dynasty. You have it when it's coming up, it's just unified, it's integrated, it's powerful, it's on the rise. That's maybe a third of the time. And then you have, uh-oh, stasis and degeneration are, are coming in. And then the final third is like absolute breakdown. And so you actually, you could take all these years of Chinese history and you, when you actually start breaking it down this way, you're looking at mostly periods of like brief periods when it's coming up, which is kind of what we could say is the 19, you know, last 20, 30 years in the recent pattern. And then it's just, it's, it's absolute chaotic breakdown. So that's really important. So what you see when there is that moment where things have come together and China has this opportunity to unify, to do big things, they go hard. They go so hard, the rest of the world looks looks at them and says, you dudes are crazy, you're extreme, you're barbaric, you're insane, because what you need to do when you get this opportunity for political consolidation, for economic integration, for development, for any of this, the Chinese, they know, it's deeply embedded in China, the Chinese psyche, that you have to go, you have to do everything. So that is why we have the largest infrastructure build out in world history by far. We have the largest investment in, in heavy industry and everything the world's ever seen by far for decades. You just see an absolute push on all cylinders from everywhere because there's no other way to do it. And the worst part about it is China's problems are so big and they've been getting worse as the country's gotten larger, as the technical systems you need to become a modernized society require more and more systems. It's become more unmanageable. So what China is doing now is just absolutely pushing everything to the absolute limit. And unfortunately, we're going to see it as it hasn't been enough. But this is, that's the key thing. You have this long history of primarily chaos. And then you have these brief moments where you can try and fix everything. And every time they try and come together, they're trying to overcome all of these challenges. And what happened this time is they're trying to use all of the tools of the industrial and the digital and the 
really the modern world of modern science and technology to overcome yeah. these really deep challenges. And this is, there's been nothing like it. The things they've accomplished far outweigh any old dynasty. It's a completely different level. Yet still, it hasn't been enough, but it's that weird combination of a long-term perspective, which honestly, it's really a farce. Anyone's ever saying, oh, these, they're like wise old mandarins and they look out thousands of years. It's like, yeah, but the pressures right now are usually so gruesome that they, they actually can't. So for example, since 2008, the reason, China was, the reason China was able to weather the storm of the financial crisis so well is because it just flooded its economy with credit and it has not been able to really stop that. So 2013, 2014, 2017, 2019, it had these opportunities to dial it back, try and reconfigure the economy, but it just can't. So what it was, what it's been doing is making the problem worse economically by kicking the can down the road. And it's, that is not something you would do if you were really looking from a long-term perspective. So actually what we've seen since around 2014, where you, you're right, they, the United, the, they tried to branch out into the rest of the world. Then they saw that capital, the rich people in China, their money was flooding out of China to not come back. They were trying to get any, all of their money out as best as they could out of China. So the Chinese government actually shut all this down. They're trying to keep everything they have together. Just recently, they're declaring that all members of the poll, of the basically the Communist Party and the high-level members and their families, they all have to sell everything they own outside of China because they're trying to get all the capital and they're trying to get all the money they can because they know, you know, basically things are about to shut down again. There's, I mean, obviously we're seeing actual shutdowns with COVID and stuff, but this is a yeah. you know, part of this larger pattern. Yeah, economic pattern. Uh, very interesting. So, uh is is China or our pocketbook the problem? Is China or the pocketbook? Yeah, is China or our pocketbook the problem? You know, America tends to go out and they want to harvest from other nations and, and it's business as usual. You know, is our pocketbook the problem? Hmm. You know, it's it's always very conflicted here. So the United States last 75 years, really 1945, let's say 2020, right when COVID hit, this has been the mm -hmm. best time for any country anywhere in the world to develop that has ever existed. And it's not even close. All the imperial systems of the world were dismantled with the, the end of the, the Soviet yeah. Union in the 1991 in, in particular. And you had global maritime trade. You had global security. You could access any resource, any market, any material any worker, any labor, anywhere in the world. So it enabled a lot of things. And there were other factors that came in. There's the demographic boom of all these countries had all of their industrial populations at in the right, you know, in the right age group at the right time, working really hard. There wasn't like 80% of the country wasn't old people, right? Who were just sitting down, which is where a lot of countries are headed. Yeah. You had all these factors yeah. that came together. And so it enabled a lot of things. And it's also enabled a lot of really bad things from the perspective of, you know, of Americans, of you know, parts of the United States, to, to make this whole global trading system work, to allow all of Western Europe to develop, to allow a place like China to develop, to allow a place like India, Brazil, all these places to develop, there was always going to be a cost in the United States. There's gonna be a social cost. There was gonna be industries that could not survive. When you're adding yeah. the equivalent of hundreds of millions of people into the global labor force yeah. uh, for pennies on the dollar, close to slave labor, because you have really cheap shipping costs, you have very low security costs and insurance costs because everything gets everywhere, really cheap. You can buy something, you know, that was built in, built in, made in Bangladesh and it costs you nothing to get it here. You know, in this world of uh, where you could manage these supply chains, you could do things that had never been done and it, it, it enabled a lot of things, but it's ultimately, I view what America did over the last 75 years as primarily a net benefit for, for the world because the 
for example, with China, so many people were brought out of poverty, it boggles your mind, right? And I, I'm one of the people, I'll frequently mention how China is much poorer than you people realize. It's, it is not a, a modern, you know, the coastal cities, you know, Shanghai is a first world city. No, no question. You go, go 200 miles inland, you know, Southwest, and there's nothing first world in, in eyesight. So that, that, that's a real challenge. But it's just, it's, there's deep moral questions. Do we care more about American populations? Do we care more about where this country is going? Do we care? It's, there's deep questions about the international yeah. system and where things could go. But here's, here's a really great way to think about it. Right now, we're seeing something, sim- we're seeing a big war in Europe. And here's, here's a question. After World War II, you know, the United States had just, not only had it you know, defeated Japan, but it also fought a war in Germany. And it managed to do so while f- providing all the materials and the money to the Soviet Union and to the United Kingdom. It basically won a, two, a war in two different parts of the world at the same time and came out totally on top. There's been nothing like this ever in history. And so if you're a, fr- a person and you're thinking, well, should I invest my money in France <laughs> right now? Or maybe I should invest it in the country with the bigger market, the gr- much greater potential, you know, to even create a system where all money, all, re- all, all talent, all, all capital, all industry doesn't head to the United States, it's almost naturally pulling things in, right? We know this with immigration. Every single person who is extremely smart yeah. and capable wants to move to the United States, and there's no way to stop that. So in a way, we are sucking all the best people out of all the other countries of the world. And we are, so is that a bad thing? Is that a good thing? It, it just, it depends on what you want. It depends where you think humanity, civilization, your country is going, and what it means, and whether it's good, whether it's bad. These are very deep questions. We don't really, it, the United States yeah. is so overwhelmingly powerful. And I, I know, and I don't mean this in sort of a American right. exceptionalist way, but it's just the absolute yeah. fact of life that That's and right. it's very hard to see it when we're inside. Of it. Yeah. Yeah. You've got such a good point there. You know, uh, there's, there's so many people that look to us, not just for favor, but for influence. And, you know, I'm watching that diminish and, it's kind of frightening, but at the same time, I have this uh, outlook that we have seen a lot of bad things and that trouble, that time that we get into, it always pulls us into this coordinated effort and we always seem to pull together. Uh, World War Two is a good example of it. You know, we we were isolated basically before world war two. And that, that was meaningful in many ways. And we were warned by George Washington in his farewell address to stay out of these international affairs. But yet here we are, we are trying to be here and there and tell everybody this and that. And you know, maybe it's a good thing. I don't really know. That's up to others to decide. But my my point is we we have a log in our own eye and we don't need to be pulling somebody's sliver out of theirs. And we always try to use our muscle instead of our political know-how to overcome these trade negotiations is very critical to everybody because everybody wants, you know, different meaningful connections, the banana market and 
avocados and rice and all of these things that come from around the world trade is a big deal and being isolated is not necessarily going to be the best route for our modern day i know a lot of people say we need to just close our borders and i don't know if that's good for us or not what what's your opinion on that so i'm going to focus on what the the way the way I see things as they are and not the way I think they should be like n- nothing how I want it to be how I wish it was I'll just try and give people a read on, on what I see and and where things things are going regardless of how I feel right I can tell you guys how I feel also yeah. at the end but I think that's a more useful baseline so I think yep. you know you really nailed it I think that if you if China has cycles of basically ordering chaos so order you got a little period order then chaos order chaos order chaos that that's the the Chinese cycle historically Americans have a different cycle I think we could say it's a a pattern of engagement and then isolation with the world. So you nailed it that George Washington says at the start, leave the rest of the world alone. We're going to do our own thing. And then you go in out, you start having, you know, you have a, obviously you have the Spanish civil war. I mean, Spanish American war, you could use that one. There's world war one. And then we go isolationist as just world war two. And then there's this. And I think the way things what's happening now is we had another period of global engagement after world war. I mean, after the nine 11, we had wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and I think we're heading into another period of some form of more isolation, just because we, Americans are tired of it. I, you know, we've had 20 years of war and it's it's gonna be extremely difficult for a government to, our government to, to say that we should really be putting more American boots on the ground in different parts of the world. And American troop deployments are actually at the lowest before Ukraine situation, uh, at the, the lowest since like reconstruction after the civil war. Yeah. It's really a strong period of retrenchment in the United States. And I think that that's an important baseline just for the American mood, the American rhythm and how it's, how it is internally. I think we're also in a very, very different world. So you were mentioning how trade is so important. Well, another important fact about the United States is that the United States is actually one of the least integrated nations in the world with other trading systems, right? It uses, it's like 14% of US GDP ish it is related to trade. Why is this? Because this is primarily because the United States has such a large internal market that it's almost like, you know, if you're selling something from Seattle to somewhere in Miami, you have, you know, 330 million people, you have high levels of income all over, you have a large consumer economy. The United States, it has all the natural, you know, basically it has the food, it has the energy, it has, it has so much of what it needs just within its borders that it has, it's almost like it is a, you know, a trading system on its own. And then you add in NAFTA, and so North America and Central America as well, and a little bit of South America like Colombia, you're looking at a massive chunk of the world that is self-sufficient in basically almost everything. And so it really does function on its own. Another country, like let's say a great example is the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom needed an empire to become the the you know the, the British Empire. There's yeah. not enough. Yeah. It's like a small, medium-sized island, right? You know, it's, it's like, you know, maybe the U.S. state of Michigan or something. And it's it's not enough there. You need an empire that will give you all the resources all around the world that you need. So you needed South America. You need and you need to find all these trade nodes all around the world. You need to control access to all these key regions around the world to just put your your finger in every pot. And a Japan's another great example. There's nothing on Japan. There's no material resources on Japan. They needed an empire to get that to get yeah. what they needed until, of course, after 1945, the U.S. basically gave the whole world the equivalent of their own empire. It's like, oh, no, don't worry. You need to go conquer China, Japan. Just just join join with us and you'll be able to access anything you want in China. It's, it's like you got it and you didn't have to pay for it. Yeah. It was one of the greatest deals ever for every country in the world. But the United States itself, 
doesn't actually need it. This is a big reason why people always ask, well, is the United States an imperial, like an empire? Is it an imperialist power or not? And there's two good ways I found to think about this. One is how does the different, how do the different parts of the United States relate to itself, right? So in a place like, let's say Russia, for example, which historically is empires, communist stuff, or even China to a lesser degree, you tend to have a, a capital city where all the money and all the wealth is in the, the main city. And there's like nothing else. There's not broad based yeah. opportunity, but in the United States, People in Texas do well. People in the North Pacific Northwest do well. People in California do well. Florida do well. The Great Lakes region do well. There's a very wide base and there is not a, there's no yoking the various parts of the country to a central authority, which is, you know, you see that in federalism. You see that in a lot of the structures the United States has. That's one important thing. And then there's also, how does the United States relate to the rest of the world? Well, a lot of what it was doing after 1945 wasn't grabbing resources all around. Like the US could have taken anything it wanted after 1945. We always need to keep this in mind. The US was so overwhelmingly powerful in 1945. Yeah. Think about it. It's just, it's not, a, again, it's not like a judge, a value judgment. It's like Europe was in ruins. Japan had been defeated. China was in civil war. Uh, Africa was, there, there was no development anywhere. It was just the United States. Quite literally could have taken over everything. Not every, you know what I mean? It could have been ridiculous. It could have been a very yeah. different world, but we didn't do that. And the big reason yes. why, it's not because we're moral. It's not because we're like, uh, better. It's like, we just didn't need it. That's crazy as that sounds. It's like, we just don't need it. You know, we'll let you guys develop, you know, you can help us fight the Soviets and you'll have access to us and we'll have access to some of your resources. You could, you could do this thing and it worked. But what, what really happens is so much of this global trading system is actually to benefit Europeans, uh, North Asia, Northeast Asians, Koreans, right. Japanese, and all that. And right. the, the big cycle that's, that's going on now is not only do we have the American pattern of isolation once more, uh, we also have absolute breakdown in the rest of the world. So we're, we're like, everyone was talking for a long time about, oh, a multipolar world where you have China and you have Russia and you have all this stuff. And I, I could, we're all saying that Russia is quite, not quite enough to be a pole on its own. It can't even take over Ukraine. And it's like lost, you know, it's really struggling there for with a basic thing. And China would struggle a lot to take Taiwan. So people should be aware of that. You could see something very similar or worse that would happen in a conflict there. And, and neither of these places could actually survive on their own. So what we're not, we're not going to, we're going to see a, it's multipolar, but it's like, well, if France is a thing, it's Turkey, this is not the kind of serious multipolar world we're talking about. We're going to just see a world of, of more breakdown of disorder of, of chaos. Unfortunately, yeah. we're seeing that with energy markets. We're seeing that with you know, fam, the clump, the coming global famine we're going to see in a lot of the world. And the United States is insulated from all of this. And it really is. It's the natural bounty of the United States of North America. And, and there's, we go really deep into this, but it really, it reflects itself in the trading patterns, in the military patterns, all the stuff that the United States engages in. And to, to just to know that we actually don't need the rest of the world as much as we, as Americans think, you know, we always think, oh, we need China to sell ourselves, to sell us stuff. It's like, and we get into that, but we don't need energy anymore because we have, we're the largest energy producer in the world, right? That's a new development. So if there's any, if there is ever American war in the Middle East, this is to help Europe get energy, right? You know, this is to help yeah, Asia get that's energy. That's right. And that's kind of actually what it was for a long time. You know, the we, we've never used it as much. We are the peak at the peak of our oil dependence in like 2005. We still use less foreign energy than China uses right now. So it's the idea that even China can survive. China needs this American system. There is no world where it can, like the whole thing we were talking about, we have this land power surrounded by not just a bunch of islands, but a bunch of his, like developed hostile nations that have been you know, lined up yeah. against China for a very long time. That's a, that's a, that's a bad neighborhood to be in. 
Yeah, uh, I'm glad you brought all that up because it's significant. Uh, we we have been the breadbasket of the world for a long time. And, you know, through these trade negotiations to help Europe, Central America, all of the other nations of the world, we we have endangered ourselves. But we, we have to remember, it doesn't take that long for American know-how and technology to tool up and Correct. start producing again. Yes. And... A lot of people, they look at Detroit, you know, and uh, these big mega factories that have dwindled to nothing. But like you just stated, that was all to help other nations develop, to help them come out of their desperate needs. It's very interesting. So I, I like that you brought that up. I think another key thing about industry, because people don't realize this, America has always has the platform to just ramp itself up. It, like yes. in a way that another country does not. We have money inside the country to, to fund almost anything we need. It's just a question of what we want to do. If we have the government that wants to do it. And you know, when, when we really need to, things happen quick here. And I, yes. I think also a key part, well, let's start with the industry thing. Because everyone looks at the Rust Belt. We just think this is the absolute decline of America. And that yeah. region of the United States has declined. But what's happened is the industrial center of the United States. Yeah, it moved, um, you know, it moved partially to you know, other countries. But what's really happened, it the United shifted. States is still, yeah, the United States is still the second or third largest exporter in the world. It is, and it's going to massively increase its industrial plan to deal with the, the breakdown of global supply chains. Because you, and it's not just because the United States is doing it. Every other country now, they don't have uh, as big a consumer market. They were here to sell to the United States. That's how Japan developed. They sold things to the United States, moved up the value chain. That's how Germany developed. Sold things to the United States, moved up the value chain. South Korea, China, all of them. And that era is unfortunately ending. So what is happening is they're all moving production to the United States. Hyundai just opened, uh, they announced another plant. Volkswagen, everyone, everyone is saying we, we have to locate mm. production in the United States. And where they go is the South. So the industrial heartland of the United States is much closer to the Tennessee River Valley than to Detroit now. It is, this is where it's happened. So you have, you have more investment. The, 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 you know, for many years running now, the state, U.S. state with the highest level of foreign direct investment, it's not California, it's not New York, it's Alabama. Alabama. Really? And it's what? Alabama. <laughs> and there's a lot of reasons for it, but basically wow. it's, it's insane. And a lot of factors are coming in. You have big one is uh, there's no union presence. So everyone likes to talk about unions and there's maybe 10, 12% of the U.S. workforce is, is unionized. And in the auto industry, it's the three major legacy automakers primarily who are unionized. And that is in the you know, Great Lakes region. And what happened starting with Toyota and, you know, and Honda back in the 70s, 80s, even the 60s, I can't remember. The, they started moving production to the United States for the same reason, for other reasons too. And they started moving to the South. And they went there because they didn't have uh, union laws. And now you have right to work laws. So you have a, a massive uh, labor advantage in the South. So your labor is cheaper. And it's not just like, not just Tesla or whatever that's doing this. It's like every foreign company mm -hmm. is in the South as well. None of their workforces are unionized. So it's a huge major oh. disadvantage to the old manufacturers, but it's, it's you know, the majority of the, the workforce is, isn't unionized anymore. And you also have cheap energy inputs because the massive oil production and natural gas production in the South, along with all the petrochemical development, you know, in Texas and Houston and all that is insane. It is, it is, it has lowered energy costs uh, extremely. So, and energy is often the most, you know, besides labor, you have energy is the largest and most costly input to industrial production. It's a big reason why 
places like Mexico have struggled to, to industrialize. It's like, you cannot have, if you don't have reliable energy, you think your house uses a lot of energy. Wait till you have a giant factory running all the time with massive equipment. It needs an enormous yeah. amount of energy. And so a big reason why Germany is in, has been in bed with Russia with energy, with natural gas is because it needed to lower its costs on energy because its labor is so high. Its labor is so costly and expensive to make itself viable. It needs to lower energy costs as much as possible. And natural gas was the way to do it. It also kind of bound them with Russia. They thought that might work out better. Didn't. Uh, and then they also need to take advantage of the EU to lower the current, to, to make their currency, uh, to make it more competitive with the dollar and to embed within the German system, a lot of cheaper labor and cheaper parts production in Eastern Europe. So they were able to lower the parts cost, also the shipping cost with global with global trade and the uh, the currency advantage. And they also got cheaper energy costs. This is why the German industrial export model, model can function. By the way, all that's going away. <laughs> Unfortunately, all that's going away. Yeah, And it's a huge thing. So the advantages that are now accruing to the United States are immense. And they, they're, they're, they go across many industries. They go across textiles, automotive, uh, aerospace, uh, petrochemical. You go across plastics, across the board. It's, it's a huge change. And you know, I think that's a very important thing, the industrial thing. I also mentioned the one of the most important facts of, of the modern world that is going to impact everything is, is demography. So this is huge. Everyone knows that China has a huge population. They know it had the one child policy and they know it has, you know, everyone's getting old and there's no babies anymore. You know, and, and the way it works, this, this happened all around the world. The moment industrialization starts, people leave the, the farms where you're in the fields where you basically had as many kids as possible. They would work endlessly for, as free labor. Uh, or, you know, if you have a family business, you have your, you, every, all the, you know, families at the Chinese restaurant working because it's free labor. You don't have to pay them. Uh, that's, that's rare though. When you get off the farm, children become a cost. You don't have as much space. You basically see that the birth rates plummet as industrialization, urbanization, education, all these things go up. Incomes yeah. go up too. Births plummet. And a lot of things that influence this and, and, and affect it, but basically all across the world. And even in India, India was the last place that had a fertility rate, was really major country, fertility rate above the replacement rate. India is now below it too. So we are at the entire world bar parts of uh, Africa, which is probably gonna happen too. The entire world is now heading towards mass aging and you know also just the disappearance of, of various states because they literally don't have enough people. And the way it used to work before industrialization is you had, you know, there's four types of workers basically. You have children, you know, zero to 18. You have young workers, which is basically 18 to like, let's say 45, and then 45 to 65, right? Then you have retirees, right? So children, young workers, mature workers, and uh, retirees, right? And the way it used to work, you used to have a lot of kids and then, you know, given the, the brutal natural world would just kill pr progressively more people. You had a lot of kids, you had no contraception, a lot of kids, you know, less young workers, less mature workers, and very few, very old people, right? Because they would die. You couldn't do anything about it. What happens when industrialization happens and all this, the demography, the, the curve starts to shift. So you have, you start to have, we went from a lot of kids to now having a lot of young workers and then a lot of mature workers. And finally we're entering the world like Japan where you have just a lot of old people. And what happens yeah. is there's certain economic impacts as you as you move through this, this changing uh, population pyramid. When you have a lot of kids, you don't have a lot of capital. Kids cost endless money. They don't pay anything into the system. There's no taxes. You have to pay for them, da, da, da. And then you have, when you have young workers, these are people who are actually just spending and get taking on debt and everything, right? Getting a house, you're yeah. buying a car, you're having a family, you're paying for all your kids, you're doing this. You're just, you're just endless money, right? And you you fuel the economic system of, of your country. I mean, you you fuel the growth. Uh, you fuel the, the immediate demand. The children are your future growth, right? Because you need more children to eventually become the new workers. And then you have the young workers who are, in demand in the moment. And then you have mature workers who are, they paid everything off. 
They, you know, they don't need, they don't need anything. Their kids are gone. Their house is paid off. They're and they're making insane money. Their costs are lower than they've ever been. They're, you know, the debt's paid off, yeah. house paid off, and they're just paying into the system. So again, they're giving you gobs of money, right? They give you gobs and gobs of money. And then finally you used to get to a world where most everyone is retired and you just, you have no money in the entire system. It's a disaster. So what's happened is everybody, you know, industrialization is happening as the world has shifted after 1945, the whole world gets access to these development possibilities. The United States is enabled. And slowly by the 1980s, 90s, you're starting to see that this growth, this movement up the population pyramid. And so in the nineties and two thousands, well, in the nineties, we actually had the majority of the developed world, the United States, we'll use the United States as an example, the United States, more majority of the people were in there, they're young workers, right? So they were just uh, spending a lot of money, but we didn't have a lot of mature workers. We didn't have as much money, but there were certain factors that made that work. And you had all this fall of the Soviet Union, you had the birth of the 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 the, the Euro and all this was flooding money into the United States. So it was actually a good time. In the 2000s, you had endless money. <laughs> in the 2010s, you have this too. You have all these mature workers who are the majority of your population and they're just sending money everywhere. Right, they're the reason you're sending money to Brazil and to China, and it's just it flows flows around endlessly, right? And now we're entering the yeah. world of the 2020s when this all stops, right? So every country is basically aging into mass retirement, and they never had enough kids. Only the United States has a large millennial generation like me, uh, who is able to eventually take the role of being a large cohort of of earners and productive citizens who pay their taxes and can fund the retirement of all these people and all that stuff. The rest of the world has none of it. China is the worst. China <laughs> stopped having kids in the 1980s. Every, their entire demographic yeah. statistics are, are, are almost a, are a fraud, basically. So I wouldn't, I'd ignore them, but it, it's a disaster. And they're going to get old before they get rich. And they're not going to be able to fund anything. They're not going to be able to have a consumer growth model because they're not going to be able to support it. There's huge problems yeah. with this. And I bring this up, not to just give this large thing, but because this is the, the world of trading, of, of trading nations and all this kind of stuff. It depends on having the right population structure to enable the right capital structure. So yeah. that means that if you have everyone's a retiree, right? You, basically, you need a country like the United States, which is the center of a trading network where everybody can sell to them. Like the United States is larger than the next six consumer economies combined. And it's going to soon be like the next 15 because everyone else is losing the ability to have those young people who buy things, right? Once you're a mature worker, yeah. you're just saving up. And then once you're a retiree, you're not, you're just, you don't make income anymore. So you have to, you save everything. You're very conservative. You don't spend, et cetera. And you require, you're getting pensions. You're doing all these healthcare costs, all these things that are actually a drag on the government finances. And so everyone's very worried about like a Chinese trading system. None of this is possible. Just you can't have China as the center of a trading system because it does, it's not a consumer economy. What it would basically try and do is destroy the industrial systems of any country that is just aligned with China. It would be you know, Vietnam and all these other countries that are with China. It, it's a disaster. It doesn't make sense. What actually, the way it used to work. So I know I've been talking a while. I think this is another really key thing. That's everybody, right. was, everybody was wanting Trump and imports and trade wars and we need some context mm -hmm. for this. So after 1945, the U.S. changed the game. The United States rewrote the map, rewrote the map. But the way it used to work is more like what Trump was talking about. So let, let me get, say, yes. tell you what I mean. You know, great, great, greatest example of it is the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom was the first place to industrialize, and it had massive products. It was creating more stuff than anyone had ever created. And so what it did is it would go pummel some country and force them to open up their markets to its products and then dump everything on them, destroy their industry, like complete. <laughs> yeah. Like that, that was the, yeah. that was a really good British right. mechanism, right? That was what they did. It was like, it was a, that was what you did when you lost. You would have to open up your economy and they would just, you know, 
destroy it basically. That is, you know, that's a very important thing. And that is more the way it worked. Industry was very precious, all the kind of stuff. After 1945, it really changed because the United States, like I said, it has, it's so big, it's so powerful. It has this enormous market, this enormous capacity that it would, we were able to allow other countries to join in on our, on our system, right? We let them in. We, we voluntarily allowed them to import to us, knowing that it would actually kind of probably hollow out a lot of industries over time. But we were so predominant, like just predominant, like we were so overwhelmingly powerful, over 50% of GDP or whatever in 1945, it didn't seem to matter that much. But then all these countries develop. You add more and more countries to it. What we were originally doing is trying to redevelop Europe and Japan to help them fight with the Soviet Union against us. We, they couldn't be rubble. They had to be useful and they had to be on the front lines, right? So it was a strategic initiative originally. And then it just became a broad, like, let's develop the whole world. Well, once you start developing the entire world, you're you're suddenly the cost of every little carve out, you know, Canadian dairy, yeah. wood products. It just starts to hit every little piece of the economy and you start to get major effects even in a country like the United States. But this whole system of allowing imports into the United States, this is the reason we were able to have the development in the, of the rest of the world that we saw. We had this time in history when you could have export-oriented industrialization, which is how every major economy, new economy has, has entered the world. Taiwan, you have Germany, not new, or re-entered or entered. So Taiwan, Germany, China, Japan, South Korea, all the major big success stories in the last 75 years, it's all export-oriented industrialization, where you industrialize by selling stuff to the United States to move yourself up the value chain and eventually have your own self-generated economic growth to some degree that lets you kind of do your own thing more. So that's the story, right? But that story is basically over. And we saw the, this trade war and what was going on with Trump. Again, it's, it's you know, one way to look at it is like the world has now changed. Uh, you know, we, we had this system that was intended to do that, but now the consequences of it were, had been felt too deeply. It had manifested in the American electorate. It had elected Trump and there'd been a strong animus against China, which is the, you know, the core country of globalization. China is like the creature, the house that globalization yeah. built basically. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And so it became the, 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 the lightning rod for all this. And what, we're, what, what a lot of that was, a lot of this trade war stuff was, was this very overt sign that the world we've known is totally coming to an end. And then what is the world that comes after this? What is the world after this global trade and globalization and cheap shipping and you know, total maritime naval protection all over the world and large consumer economies. Uh, we don't know, but it doesn't look good. Like for most of the world, there's no answer to this problem. There's no answer to what you do if your entire population is heading towards mass retirement or death, right? You, you, you're as a, yeah. as a state, as a demography, you are disappearing. So I will say, um, this is a slight side, but when you have this, we, we've had a lot of, a lot Many times in history, there's been great fears over the ch a changing national population, right? In the United States, yeah. when the, the Poles were coming into the country, the Irish, Catholics, all this stuff about the national composition of a country, it's been very fraught. And I will say that we've never been in a world where you have total depopulation of the world going on. Deglobalization, yes. depopulation are the two major forces going on right now. And when you have depopulation and you have these changing ethnic makeups of the country, this is a witch's brew for crazy ideas for uh, everything, everything you can imagine. And I just, that, that context is important because there's no government that has provided, uh, a, a really even talked about this issue as much as they should. And there's not even a hope for improving it, right? But China's not going to be able to do a fertility program that's going to work. Russia tried and failed. Iran, I think, actually has the most intense attempt to have more people to improve its population, to improve all this that's stuff right. I'm talking about. 
It's been a total disaster. China is literally converting old abortion clinics into like fertility clinics, but it's not going to matter. This is a deeper rooted yeah. process related to industrialization and urbanization. And it's, 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 it's broader. It's across the world. So it's a, it's a major problem. And basically we're going to have to live with it. And really the only country that major country that can look like, look like, looks like it can make it out of this in any kind of good shape is the United States for all the reasons we talked about the natural bounty, all the people that everyone at the high end and the low end of the, the labor, the skill set labor scale, like skill set scale, it, they all want to come to the United States, whether you're a really poor uh, Mexican person who wants to have the largest increase in your wages, going from you know poor rural agriculture or something in Mexico to any job in the United States, even a minimum wage job, that's often the largest increase in wage anyone ever gets. And then at the high end, if you're the most educated person in Ukraine, if you're one of the smartest engineers in Russia or whatever, you always want to go to the United States. So the United States is going to suck up not only all the labor in the world, I call it labor, it's also going to set up all, suck up all the capital. So money is flooding out of economies. Rich people, basically, the smart money, so-called, is leaving all the other countries where the writing is on the wall for the entire system as it is. So all that money is probably going to flood into the United States. That's why right now, among other reasons, why the US dollar is about to hit parity with the euro, and it's going to erase one of the competitive advantages there. And you just you have money flooding in to, to the U.S. system, which is often reflected in the, US, the strength of the U.S. dollar, and it, that's not going to stop. And then the United States has the labor advantage. It has the capital advantage, not only because the money's coming in, but the U.S. produces more capital naturally than any other country. And then it has the land advantage because the United States has the best geography in the world to, to accept all these people for transportation, for agriculture, for trade, for industry. You know, that's the, the root of it. So you have these inbuilt advantages that are all stacked up off, off each other, and it's actually leeching whatever is possible from the rest of the world to try and fix themselves. Not that they could do it anyway, but this is the, the way things look. Yeah. You know, that's well said. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up the upside down pyramid basically with our population. Uh, it's critical. And that, that global thing is going to affect all of us. It's going to be interesting the next 50 years to see what transpires out of this. Ooh. And real, yeah, really the uh, population growth is very important for any nation. This, this concerns me now with a lot of what's going on in America, but you know, uh, you, you said earlier in what you were just stating about not taking uh, statistics what's coming out of China, but, you know, one study suggests that the slowest population growth since the 1970s out of China right now. And I, I think that's really significant when we look at like the one child policy that they had. And I think they changed that now where they've actually want people to start yeah. populating China. And that's a scary thought also because, you know, the China already has a lot of people. So gobbling up resources to support all of this, it, it's a fight, that's for sure. What, what do you think we are actually looking forward to with relationship with China because you see this expansion into the South China Sea and you know that I'm more concerned with the Taiwani situation than the Hong Kong situation 
but they're both kind of really key to that that global trade and what's your opinion and thought on that sure so i think key thing is that the chinese no attempt to reconfigure the chinese population structure is going to work right that, that's kind of what i was alluding to earlier it's it's too little too late for their attempt to change the, the one child policy yeah. way too way too little way too late is the way to think about it so that's not going to succeed and then you're also right mm. that china really in the last 500 years china has become increasingly overpopulated not like in some generic, but like to what the land in China is capable of supporting. All right. So yeah. uh, what do I mean by that? So the United States, uh, just one of the most important facts about China is that roughly two thirds of China is mountainous or hilly. You know, it's not good land to do anything. Right. A great example is Hong Kong. Right. It's really impressive looking city because it builds uh, skyscrapers up the mountainside. But you don't want to build skyscrapers up a mountainside if you could ever avoid it. You go to Manhattan. It's all flat. Right? That's what you want. That's, that's much better. So, and you'll see the same thing with agriculture. You see these really impressive rice paddies that crawl up mountainsides. Well, you don't want to do that if you ever can because you can't use mechanized agriculture. It's much more labor intensive to do it. You don't have much. You can't go tractors. It's, it's, it's a disaster, yeah. is what it is. So, the United States is the opposite. It's basically, instead of one third, instead of one third good land, like two thirds uh, you know, flat good land, and then two thirds like mountainous land, it's the opposite. So, it's like one third, you know, the Rockies and Appalachia, and then the rest of it yeah. is mostly good, right? Yeah. So, that's a really important thing. And what that means is that China, basically when we all hear about like the Colombian exchange, right? So you got the new world plants that went to the old world, we got tomatoes and you know, then there's potatoes and all the, the crops are shifting back and forth. Well, another key thing is that a lot of these crops also went to China around the same time. And things like yams, certain sweet potatoes, stuff like that, it allowed, uh, to, it allowed China to basically cultivate a lot of the marginal land, a lot of this hilly land I'm talking about, and it led to a population explosion that started in the last 500 years. And then this really hit a peak in the Qing dynasty. And basically since 1800, China has been uh, way overpopulated compared to what it could support. And then this just went out of control in the 20th century with, right, when when it went to over a billion people, right? So it went from like 500-ish million to then to like 1.2, you know, to potentially 1.4, depending on what you believe about the statistics. So it's a, it's massive, and it's far more than the Chinese uh, land could support. The one way to look about this is the actual uh, arable land that you can use, and how much yield you can get per acre, and how many calories that produces, and how much, how many calories, I mean, what number of people that that amount of calories can support. Right, that's the one way to look at it. That's right. And the only reason that China is able to support the number of people it has is actually because of basically industrial agriculture. Basically, they inject the land with more. Uh, industrial fertilizer than anywhere else on earth. It's not even close. And that's what they do. They basically inject it with steroids to kind of get the, to juice it, to get the, the numbers yeah. they need. But I'll tell you, even when I was in China, I think this was 2012, I was getting a lecture. Basically I was looking at a map of China where every, where all the crops are produced in China. And I remember this, we go learn all this stuff, learn all this stuff. This guy stops, Chinese guy. He's like, we can't, he basically just said, I mean, at the time I was thinking, wow, China is so triumphalist. What's going to happen? And he's like, we can't have a first world diet in China. He's like, we don't have enough land to have the livestock, to have it also have the grain to feed the livestock, to eat as much meat as the rest of the world. Like full stop, or the United States, like full stop. We can't eat, like, and, and to, to make it more, even more powerful, China, if, if China could buy soybeans from the United States, China wouldn't be able to eat meat, right? So we're always like, oh, wow, we only just sell soybeans to them. And then they sell us all these manufacturing goods. And God, we're just becoming like a satellite colony of China. It's like, uh, right, there's, there's some of that that's kind of relatively true. But the deeper thing is like, if they didn't have soybeans, they couldn't eat meat. They would all have to eat rice. And the whole Chinese agricultural system is, is a mess. I have a big article on that. If anyone's interested, it's called Feeding China. 
And and it's, it's a bad thing. So I just want to give the sense of this population pressure and these ecological, which is creating all these ecological problems. And there is no world where China doesn't have some of the worst ecological disasters in the next 50 years. There's no world yeah. where that just isn't the way it's going to happen. So that is a huge challenge. And then most likely we're going to see mass famine in China. I, I, don't, I don't want to sound brutal, but the, the, the end result, anyone who's been listening this long, China isn't like in for a couple bad years. China, as we know it, is doomed. That, that is really the key thing here. And this is obviously very different from what you know, people will say, and everyone's been saying that China is a major threat. And kind of what happened is in the 90s, 80s, and 2000s, we were kind of underestimating, underestimating China. And then we kind of flipped back over and we're like, now we're overestimating China. And so I always give this large context so people know that I'm, I've thought this through a good amount, but China is, is functionally doomed, right? It's the energy, the agriculture, we go through all these stuff, the finances, the, the trade wars, the diplomatic problems, the political problems, the internal tensions, it goes on and on. And th the reason we're seeing a dictatorship in China is because the CCP and Xi Jinping look at the lay of the land and they think, oh my God, we know what this story looks like in China, in Chinese history. We yeah. know what it, like, the main theme yeah. of Chinese history is uh, imperial collapse, basically. Imperial, imperial collapse in the attempt to recover what we once had. That is the, that's the theme of the, what I, I'd argue is the, the most important Chinese political novels called Romance of the Three Kingdoms. It's about the fall of the Han Dynasty and the attempt by a noble, virtuous band of people to recreate that uh, great Han Dynasty and to figure out, you know, not have it descend into chaos. And the attempt to figure out what went on with the Han Dynasty, like that was the first time that China really came together. And it, it, the fact the Han Dynasty failed was like, it's this, there's nothing more romanticized and thought through and studied in Chinese history. The attempt to figure out why Han China failed, the Han, uh, Han Dynasty failed. I mean, right, it's, we call them the Han Chinese people, right? That, that's where, before then they were called something else, the people in China. So it is a very key thing. We don't really think about it in the same way with Rome, but it's very, 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 very important in China. And the, the answer is, of course, that there is these deep structural problems that no state has been able to overcome and that have gotten worse with time. So the population pressures are, are, are brought up are bad. The fact that China doesn't have the, the energy resources it needs, like we've talked about, once you industrialize, you need energy. Germany put itself in bed with Russia just to get the energy it needed because then you can't be an industrial power. The Japan had to join with the alliance, the, the United States. It, had, it has no choice to this day because it, it cannot get the it cannot be civilized if, if it doesn't get the energy that the United States enables it to get, right? If this is this is the way of the world. And all these problems have gotten worse as China has gotten larger and as things have gotten worse. And the, the net effect of this is, is a horrific collapse of China, right? It will be as impressive as the rise. That's, that's fascinating. Uh, and I want to segue with that just a little bit because we're touching on our time limit here. There's two other subjects I'd like you to address, and I'll kind of combine them. That's the... Uh, nuclearization of China and all of that, you know, nuclear power that it has under the CCP. And also, what's with all of the cities, the ghost cities in China? And what is that about? Okay. So nuclearization, do you mean nuclear weapons or nuclear energy or both? Well, e either way, because, yeah. you know, you can easily transfer once you have the technology of one to the other. Sure. So for nuclear weapons, uh, China has had nuclear weapons since 
fifties or sixties. Uh, they got it mm-hmm. you know, along with the Soviet Union. It was one of the first nuclear powers. I think it was maybe Japan, uh, France, probably before maybe the UK, but it's been nuclear for a very long time. And yes. the uh, nuclear diplomacy and strategic deterrence, all this kind of stuff is a nitty gritty area of uh, sort of strategic thinking and stuff. But the gist of it yeah. is basically that uh, China just needs to be able to have a credible threat to you know the Soviet Union and the United States, uh, now Russia and the United States. That's the gist of it. The increasing the number of nuclear weapons that you have really doesn't change the strategic picture, right? This is part of the reason we had all these arms agreements during the second half of the 20th century. Like you didn't need, like once you hit a certain number of nukes, uh, it's a, don't worry, you've destroyed that country. You know what I mean? Like having 20 more, hundred more, it doesn't really change things, but it is, it's often a, you know, a big reason, for example, a big reason in the United States has, is always doing nuclear testing, not, well, not anymore, but is always doing missile testing, military exercise, all this kind of stuff is in part because a country like Russia, for example, responds to this sort of strong yes. defensive posture, right? Saber rattling. Saber rattling. They look at this and they're like, uh-oh, you know, that's, that's a big deal. So that's a big part of it. And so it is a great sort of great power type thing. There's a huge nuclear component to it. And, you know, the threat of tactical nuclear, nuclear weapons right now in Ukraine is something people are worried about, but most likely, uh, like the key thing is that China's problems are internal to China. So there's nothing it can nuke to solve this issue, right? The, and the same thing was with Russia. It's like, you can you yeah. can nuke the United States well, to destroy your country, right? That, that's the net, like you could do it out of spite. Like the United States is still chugging along and it's just, you're just so angry about it. And there's a limit yeah. to what anyone could do about that. But that's, that's kind of the, the main nuclear threat. I mean, there's no amount of, China would, China's not, it's, first of all, China has a very small number of nuclear weapons. A couple, I think it's a couple hundred compared to thousands for the United States and for the Soviet, uh, Russia. So it's, it's always never wanted to invest in the nukes because it knew it doesn't really change things, right? Uh, it, it really doesn't change the picture. It's about investing more because it's trying to, it's trying to amp up the credibility of its threat and its ability to intimidate all this kind of stuff. But truly like in the, in the, the end game, you know, hypersonic nuclear weapon, it doesn't matter what kind of nuke you have. There's this, there's submarines. The United States has permanent submarine patrols under the water, and you know, and it has air. There's again, this is this whole triad thing in America. Also, people in the strategic community and all that, like the sort of political foreign policy community, people freak out whenever people like the United States is currently spending an insane amount of money to modernize all of the nuclear weapons. We're having new subs. It's going to be. It's just like, don't worry, we're spending a lot more on nukes than them. I mean, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but that's part of it. Well, on the yeah. Top, on top of nuclear energy, nuclear energy is actually the – this is the one energy source that could solve a lot of China's problems. I, I have an article about this and how I, I really think that this is true. Uh, solar and wind energy is useless for China. China uses 50% more energy than the United States, just to give you a sense of the scale of the wow. energy needs. right? So this is China's problem. It's wow. always a scale problem. <laughs> China has to feed 1.4 billion people. Yeah. So you, there's the entire international agricultural export market can't help them if, if agriculture in China fails. So that's one thing. And then the same thing with energy. They have nowhere near the resources they need internally to, to fuel this need, right? It, it's just huge. The one thing they do have is coal. So that's why they use more coal than the rest of the world combined. Coal is, the re, is a big reason why they're able to get cheap energy to, you know, like Germany was using the Russian gas recently in the last couple of decades, China used coal. And that's why it's so dirty and hideous and stuff around Beijing. In Beijing, that's right. Yeah, it circles around there. So nuclear energy is is a key thing, but nuclear energy as an industry has huge problems. It's extremely expensive to build nuclear power plants. There's no economies of scale. You're spending billions of dollars on each new plant. And then also, 
first of all, there's a lot of problems. So China has built, you often build nuclear power plants near water for various reasons, cooling, stuff like that. And, right. you know, you could have, if you have a natural disaster, kind of like a Fukushima, anything like that, even China is cautious about building just a bunch of shitty, excuse my language, shitty nuclear yeah. power plants everywhere, right? That would, yeah. that could end, end the, any attempt of having nuclear energy solve the problem. But you have basically a cost problem. You have a scaling problem. And you have just you know problems of really maturing the technology, improving the safety. It's a huge, it's a huge problem. So there's a current push in the Western world, a bit a bit as well in China too. There's a new generation of nuclear reactors coming. They're smaller. They're supposed to be safer. Realistically, they're not coming until 2030. And then to, to ramp them up is also extraordinarily difficult. So there's no answer to China's energy problem just because of that scale. You, you need so much. You need 50 percent more in the United States. You'd be building insane amounts of. Uh, Nuclear power plants—you have to do it quickly, cheaply, uh, safely. They don't have this—they don't have the industry to do that, uh, and they don't have the money anymore. They have a lot of problems, and it, there's not enough time. So that's that's what I'd say for the nuclear energy thing. Although long term, if we had a world where we had energy too, te- too cheap to meter, a lot of things would change. Uh, a lot of things would change. So that's yeah. one thing that could be a big part of it. And then Hong Kong, Hong Kong's future is to be flattened. Uh, I guess not flattened physically, but flattened to become an indistinguishable part of Southern China. At least this is the Chinese national government's attempt. So Hong Kong's role, so Hong Kong, Taiwan, and China, mainland China, all developed together as one greater system from the 70s on, right? So uh, late 70s on. So Taiwan was providing a lot of technology and financing. uh, The UK, I mean, the Hong Kong under uh, British authority provided a lot of capital and a lot of financial know-how, and it acted as a borderland and interface region for both financial flows, monetary flows, everything that you need to get into China and to start developing these core coastal regions that we talked about, where a lot of the special economic zones in China were you know, designed to deal you know, interface with uh, Hong Kong, to interface with, you know, Xiamen was trying to interface with Taiwan. This is a lot of the way that this happened. So they're part of one system. However, we are now at the place where all these global trade flows and capital flows, everything is dragging down. And so Hong Kong doesn't have the role it used to have. And Hong Kong is also competing with the internal Chinese financial center at, in Shanghai. So it's a huge problem. And in any battle between Hong Kong and Shanghai in a world where de, there's deglobalizing processes going on, Hong Kong loses. So Hong Kong has been losing its value to China in the sense that it doesn't provide the same amount of economic benefits, doesn't help stabilize the currency, doesn't help with all the foreign direct investment, all this kind of stuff. It does to some degree, but now you have greater problems. There's a lot of, there's deeper problems that this country is creating, this the city state is creating. And it's, it gets back to what we were talking about, about how China opens up the ports and then it closes them. And Hong Kong is really the, one of the places where this is being seen in direct, you know, in, the, in, the, in the sunlight. And what Hong Kong is, what's happening there is the problem of democracy, the problem of freedom of speech, all these things in the Chinese eyes is, is happening in Hong Kong. It's visible. And the idea that Hong Kong has become wealthy and a modern first world state or city without really being part of the Chinese system in the same way. What this does is this opens up independent separatist tendencies all across the Southern Chinese coast. Because there's a lot of city states basically nestled up in the mountains along the Southern coast that are functionally, these are these could be like Hong Kong. They could interface with the rest of the world. They could, they're not really as integrated in with the Chinese system. So there's a, this is one of these deep structural um, many parts of China problems. And Hong Kong is foremost in, the, in that mind because it is, it's now pro- not providing, it's not functioning as this borderland interface zone because the, there's less of an interface between the West and China. And a lot of the, and Hong Kong is becoming a locus for the, the, the conflicts. It's becoming a border zone, like a conflict yeah. border zone rather than a you know, helpful, friendly border, right? 
that's what's going on in Hong Kong. And their their policy is to try and flatten it to make Hong Kong indistinguishable from any other Chinese city, to make it, you know, to just bring it into the fold, make people forget, make it just part of the system. We'll see how that works. Most likely that's going to have some problems. And so that's the Hong Kong situation. You're just going to see an endless string of stories about how things are getting worse. Freedoms are getting worse. People are getting arrested. Catholic bishops, you know, newspaper owners, and people who speak out, human rights activists, et cetera. That, that's what's happening. You have increasing number of Chinese stooges, political officials, appointees, kind of running things, kind of towing the government line, et cetera. That's part of it. And then for Taiwan, you have a, another thing. I mean, Taiwan is much bigger issue in the Chinese world, right? The entire Chinese military, uh, communist Chinese, Chinese military is designed to conquer Taiwan and to prevent the United States from interfering, to let it happen, et cetera. This is really the what it's it designed to do. And you know, China sees Taiwan as a part of China. And this is part of a historical pattern where China, this is the second time that a Chinese government that lost a war has fled to China. Actually, when there was the, the Ming and the Qing were fighting it out in a massive yeah. civil war, the Ming, yeah. part of the Ming dynasty basically just fled to Taiwan. And what happened That's is right. after it took over mainland China, the uh, the Qing just eventually built up a quick Navy and eventually took them out. But this time the US Navy stood between them and Taiwan. So there was no chance, like we've talked about before, the zero chance you could have, doesn't matter how many how many boats you bring you're not winning this fight yeah. so taiwan was protected and it became and part of the this the fact the us prevented china from having taiwan is made this massive problem for china forever it's probably part of you know it's part of us strategic policy to kind of you know throw a, a wrench in their whole plan and now we have this issue i mean there's many levels to the taiwan thing i'm going to do a podcast about it eventually but yeah things are so fluid there's lots to do right now but Taiwan's very interesting. It is deeply integrated with the global technological, financial, and trading world. In particular, yeah. it is really important for semiconductors. Really, really, yes. really important. So what, what, a lot of what's happened now, just to dive right into it really quick, quick uh, lay of the land, the Ukraine war and the issues in Hong Kong have changed the calculus. A lot of what we were doing, we were always kind of giving implicit support to Taiwan, and we were kind of like, we don't want to, we left it implicit, and we were allowing Beijing to do all this stuff, and we didn't want them to, to declare independence, but we also didn't want Beijing to try and take it by force. And we kind of lived in this gray zone for a while. Now that Hong Kong is, where Taiwan has seen what Hong Kong, what it looks like when you reintegrate with China, starting in 1997, we're now seeing where that that's ended. Right. That's yeah. kind of showing the way things are, are going to go. And then yeah. on now we're, with the Ukraine war, we're also seeing what a, that China, in the same way Russia can't just you know steamroll uh, Ukraine, yeah. like everyone thought, China is not going to be able to steamroll Taiwan. It's what it's wanted to do is present this as like a fait accompli. No matter what you do, no matter what happens, Taiwan, you just, we're so big, we're so powerful. Taiwan, it's inevitable. Just accept it. And that's been their, their MO. That's not going to work. The Chinese, they could easily yeah. lose a third or more of their military trying to do this and fail. So that is, that's kind of what's happening there. And there's just been such a hardening. I mean, we also saw a retali retaliatory financial war as a result of China, uh, Russia's yeah. invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. So the ability of the West to, come together to defend against these sort of uh, hostile actions, that's been shown to be much larger than anyone thought, really. And that was Taiwan interesting. Is, is part of that fold. And the other thing is also Japan has basically announced that any any battle with Taiwan would involve Japan as well. Because in the way it works is Taiwan, you can see from one of the, the, the farthest, the southernmost Japanese island, you can see Taiwan on a good day. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah. and it naturally... Yeah. Break China needs to break get to Taiwan to break through this island chain that separates it from the rest of the world, gives it space to maneuver, do all this kind of stuff. But you take Taiwan and you you're, you basically have to take parts of um, you know the Ryukyu Islands, which is like where Okinawa is. You have to basically go. 
And so Japan knows like, well, if you take that, you're going to take our stuff. So we're just going to stop you there. So now you're seeing a lot of problems. I mean, China's, there's the amount of force that could be brought to bear against China is much larger than what Ukraine has. First of all, Taiwanese, that's a, that's an advanced modern industrialized nation with a very difficult geography, which if you have enough asymmetric warfare stuff like drones and mines and missiles, China can never conquer this island, right? And you're getting American support and maybe Japanese support. This is a difficult thing. And if you also get retaliatory sanctions, like what we're seeing with Russia, because now we're seeing yeah. like the, the genie's out of the bottle, the Chinese system collapses because there's, like we, we talked about, they need all these imports. They have to, they built 600 major industrial cities, large, like millions of people. They need, they, look, we, we're used to thinking of China as an export hub, but it also, it has a, it has a deficit in the current account because it now needs to import so much to keep all this stuff up, up, up and running. We've talked about how the, it's so many people. Yeah. You don't have enough uh, you know, agricultural materials. You don't have enough energy resources, but you also don't have enough metals and minerals and everything else. So it needs the rest yeah. of the world. And so this is this dilemma. And the Chinese government has justifiably seen all this and decided not to attack Taiwan for a long time. It's known this, but things are getting very bad in China. So, you know, it's it's not um, impossible that a state like China, which is on the ropes, kind of like Russia really was on the ropes uh, before the Ukraine war, the, the, not because of what we're doing, just because the the the, dem, the the demography, the, the economic system, all of it is collapsing in Russia. And there's they're staring at the, like I've said, China is most likely doomed. So they're staring at something just as horrifying, worse, much worse than what's gonna happen in Russia, it's gonna happen in China. So you, sometimes you need to do something, change the narrative, do whatever you need to do. But that's really what we're looking at in Taiwan. And yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the story. And it's really yeah. changed. I'm actually glad I haven't done a, a podcast on it because so much has changed that it's good that I'll be able to kind of have more up to speed than if I'd done it before yeah. Ukraine and all that. that. That sure is a hot zone in our world today. And that's where my attention has been focused. Not really, Ukraine really kind of concerns me because, it, you know, the wheat production and the grain productions, all of this, th that's going to affect a lot of these other nations in the world. So it's interesting. And that, that Taiwan thing it really is on my mind because the legitimacy of the governance there, you know, they they actually claim to be the rightful heir of China anyway. So that's contentious. It has been for a long time. Very interesting. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation. I'm not going to keep you here much longer. Uh, could you give us a call to action for our listeners and tell our listeners where to find you, please. Sure. Yeah. So you guys can find me on, let's see, Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, Instagram. I do some live streams. I got uh, obviously videos. I got interviews, all that kind of stuff. Uh, TikTok's probably the most fun. I'm doing little short videos and that's fun. Everyone should check out the podcast too. So there's a podcast called China Unraveled. A new episode's coming out called The Red Emperor. Uh, it's very cool. I think you guys will really like it. it talks about how what, what politics looks like in China. It's kind of a continuation of a five-part series called Tales of the Communist Empire, which talks about what on earth is the Communist Party? How do you have a communist party with hundreds of billionaires you know, in the country and dozens in the government? It's like, what's going on here? So there's a long story about that. And then this one is about politics, power transitions, how, how the sausage gets made in China. Something people don't know. It's a black box. It should be really interesting. That's cool. The another thing is everyone can check out. I have a website, jasonsheffield.net, and it it's got articles, got stuff. You know, I say I have an article on this thing. You can check that out there. Uh, Twitter, I talk about you know, whatever's on my mind. I don't don't look for very enlightened commentary there. It's more of a I wouldn't say poop emojis, but uh, I'm less uh, constrained <laughs> and uh, super uh, 
all put together when I'm on there. And yeah, and then everyone should get ready. By the end of the year, there's going to be a book called uh, China Unraveled. Uh, it's going to be the same name as the podcast. Uh, and it's going to go through these, these deeper patterns in Chinese history. So it's we're at this moment where the United States is now the undisputed uh, most powerful country in the world. And there is, there is no one that can even attempt to compete with us. We, we've gone into this a lot in this podcast. And basically, this, this happened in the late, 19, uh, late 19th century. The United States eclipsed all the European powers as industrial and agricultural, commodity, consumer market, all that kind of stuff. It happened again in 1945. It happened again in uh, 1991. And now with the collapse of China, this is the last country on earth that could really pull together the land, the labor, the capital, the technology, the talent, everything to try and compete with the United States. So we're living in a very, very different world. And I think to understand where the United States come from, where does our great power come from? What does it mean to have responsibilities? Uh, is it because we're exceptional? Is it because we're, uh, we used to be part of you know Britain? Where does this come from? I think this is a very important thing to get a grounded sense of this because you don't want to get wrapped up in either sort of disparaging the United States too much or valorize. You want to get too much American exceptionalism and too much like anti-American appealism yeah. type stuff. You want to have a grounded sense of what's going on. So that's useful. And then also when you compare Russia, I mean, you know, China to the United States, you really see, gives you this deeper sense of history and, and what's going on. And I think when things really go bad to connect yourself to deeper patterns, trends, histories, whatever it has, happens to be is very powerful because we're in a time of uh, extreme disorder. Our political systems are reconfiguring themselves. They're not where you should be putting a lot of your mental energy in or emotional energy, even though we all are. So that's a problem. And I think that just trying to get a better sense of, of how the world works is really important. We're losing the ability to do that from the media, from journalism, not even just the media. I mean, like the quality of journalism has declined. It's no longer an industry that is uh, self-sustaining. It, it doesn't have an economic base that can support journalists. So we used to have some of the smartest people about international affairs and all this kind of stuff we used to be correspondents who were embedded all over the world. They're embedded in China. They've been everywhere. They've seen everything. They've seen so much. These people, they're, they're retiring and we don't have another crop of journalists that have the same breadth of experience. They don't have the same, they haven't been tutored by people who knew so much. They, they don't see these longer patterns and trends and it's extremely uh, dangerous. It's unfortunate. And you, we really, really need to get a, a broader picture here. It's, it's, it's very good for all of us. And at some point in the future, I want to create a course that can help ground people with this to give a sense of these deeper, where, how things develop, how we went from nothing to, to agriculture, these big, this battle between geography and technology could really help Let's get a sense of how things happen, but that'll be late in the future. For now, uh, check out the podcast, check out the book, check out where I am. Uh, you know, please message me if you think I'm totally wrong or whatever. Feel free to donate, send money, whatever you want. Uh, if you enjoyed this, and I, I really enjoyed talking to you. So if you ever want to talk again, this would be a, a good thing because there's definitely going to be a lot of meaty global problems coming down the pipeline and China's going to be oh, yeah. really at the center. Yeah. That's right, Jason. Uh, I think you're a wealth of knowledge, and I had a fantastic time speaking with you. And thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us here on the Dead America podcast. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. If you found this podcast enlightening, entertaining, educational in any way, please share, like, subscribe. And join us right back here next week for another great episode of Dead America Podcast. I'm Ed Waters, your host. Enjoy your afternoon, wherever you may be.